Always fun when we can be talking a little bit more about the Truman Library. Special event coming up one week today that marks the release of a new book as well. Yes, and we have the author of that book online with us who will be there at the Truman Museum for all of this. Matthew Algio is uh, giving us a brand new one called When Harry Met Pablo, Truman, Picasso, and the Cold War Politics of Modern Art. That's on the heels of Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure. And Matthew Algio, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, about Picasso because this is the first time hearing that Pablo Picasso and and Harry Truman were ever in the same room together. But we've got to talk some about the adventure as well. Tell us about how the Picasso meeting happened. Yeah, so uh, Harry uh, hated modern art and he hated communists, uh, but the uh, <laughs> director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, Alfred Barr had heard that Harry was going on this Mediterranean cruise. This is the summer of 58. So it's about five years after uh, Truman left the White House. And uh, Barr, the uh, director at MoMA, had always wanted to get Harry interested in modern art to convert him to the modern viewpoint, as he put it. But Harry always resisted. So when Barr heard that he was going to France, he thought, well, what better person to convince Truman of the benefits of modern art than Pablo Picasso? So he quietly arranged this meeting between Truman and Picasso that uh, took place in June of 58, and he did it very slyly. He sort of made Picasso think that Truman really wanted to meet him, and he made Truman think that Picasso really wanted to meet him. So it was quite a, quite a coup to pull this meeting off. Okay, so what do we know about the meeting, and, and did they click? They did, and that's what's really fascinating because they're very different people, you know. Harry was really salt of the earth, a family guy. Uh, Picasso had wives and multiple children with multiple women. And uh, at the time, in fact, he was uh, living with a woman who was not his wife, which, of course, Bess was not very happy about. Mm -hmm. um, but they really did enjoy the, enjoy the day they spent together. In fact, it originally had been planned that they would just go have lunch uh, at Picasso's uh, estate in, uh, near, uh, near Cannes. And But when lunch was done, uh, Picasso offered to take them around and show them some of the sites, mostly sites to deal with uh, himself, Picasso, because he was very egocentric. So he took them to his studio, and then they took him, uh, they took, uh, he took them to uh, uh, his, uh, a museum uh, that is now the uh, largest Picasso museum. So it, it really was kind of interesting how these two people who were really opposites in so many ways really, really hit it off. Well, yeah, I mean, even on your website, which, by the way, is malgeo.net, M-A-L-G-E-O.net, you can learn more about the book uh, When Harry Met Pablo there and all of the other books that uh, our guest Matthew Algeo has written. And, and you put it perfectly. I mean, that dichotomy of, you know, here on one side, you have one of the most famous paintings to come out of the, the Spanish Civil War era in, in Guernica. And the man who painted that is in the same room with the guy who authorized dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. I mean, right. you wanted to, so I guess the, the question in that is, did they talk politics at all? You know, I think they avoided talking politics, and all the reports we get from the day they spent together largely come from a couple that accompanied the Trumans on their trip, Sam and Dorothy Rosenman. Sam Rosenman had been his uh, uh, White House counsel, and they became very good friends. So fortunately, Dorothy kept, uh, kept notes and wrote about the trip, though she seems to imply that politics was not much discussed, that art was much discussed. And uh, Harry didn't hold back his opinions to Picasso, apparently, about what he thought about the art. Um, but Picasso was able to roll with the punches. But whether they ever got down to that nitty gritty, I don't think that happened. Did they keep in touch after that meeting? 
you know, I, I don't think they did. Um, I, I do think, though, that uh, there there was – the meeting itself was the, – the symbolism of the meeting itself was very important. You know, Truman was very anti-modern art, but at the time in America, there was a, a movement uh, aligned with McCarthyism to uh, to censor art, to maybe stop museums who displayed modern art from getting government funding because – People on the right thought modern art was synonymous with communism. So the symbolism of Truman, who was virulently anti-communist, meeting with Picasso, who was a very famous communist, I think had, a, had an effect of really softening attitudes uh, towards modern art in the U.S. And then just two years after this meeting, JFK is elected, and, and, and JFK invites to his inaugural some modern artists. So you really see a pretty big change in the decade of the 50s about attitudes toward modern art. So I don't think they stayed in touch, but I do think the meeting had some consequence. Definitely. And and I want to go back, as we mentioned, and talk a little bit about the previous book, the one that came out in 09, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, because I think in their own ways, I mean, that took place in 1953, right after Truman was out of office. Mm-hmm. The meeting that you're talking about with Picasso was five years later in 1958. Mm-hmm. And I think that really underscores the fact that that post-presidency, Harry Truman really had a thirst for sort of enriching himself, uh, finding out the things that he didn't know yet. Talk a little bit about that post-presidency and what that period meant to him and to Bess. Yeah, uh, there are a couple interesting things about it. When he left the White House in 53, ex-presidents did not receive a pension and they did not uh, receive Social Security protection. So on on this trip in 1958, there was no Secret Service accompanying them. And in, in 1953, uh, in Excellent Adventure, I write about a road trip they took from Independence to the East Coast and back that summer. And there were no attendants or bodyguards or security of any kind. So Harry really was able to go back and, and live something close to a normal life in those first five years after he left the White House. And he really, I think he relished that. He really enjoyed meeting people. He could strike up a conversation with anybody. It was amazing. And he would talk to people, the guy who filled his, uh, you know, who pumped the gas at the gas station and his son, who was the uh, attendant washing the windows, the, uh, the waitress at the diners they stopped at, the clerk at the motel they stayed at. He would have conversations with these people and they all, to, to a person, said, it, you know, it was like you were the most important the w- person in the world when you talked to him. I mean, he was such a good politician uh, because of the way he connected with people, I think. And I think he really enjoyed them. I think that really kind of invigorated him. And he loved to travel. So he was able to travel pretty easily in, in those first few years after he left the White House. Matthew, where does your interest in Truman come from? You know, I, I, I like these little stories that kind of give you a way to tell the bigger story about 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 people, especially Truman. And Truman's one of these guys. He lived such an eventful life, right? I mean, yeah, you, know, you could say World War One vet, the haberdashery goes out of business. He, you know, gets a job on the Jackson County uh, board. He uh, uh, then is senator and vice president and, and, and all these things that happen that I think when somebody lives a life that eventful, some of the smaller episodes kind of get lost in the shuffle. I, I like to say the, um, you know, the story about him and Bess driving across the country in 53. Well, in David McCullough's book, which is the, you know, the gold standard of Truman biographies, that story takes a, a paragraph. That's all it gets. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, wow, there must be 
there must be more behind this, right? He got pulled over by a cop on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So, <laughs> so I, I think the way, you know, sometimes the way to get into these characters that are just so larger than life is to to find these little stories. And I think Truman's life is just full of them. Yeah. Imagine hearing, do you know how fast you were going, Mr. President? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just you're right. It is fascinating stuff. And I, I wonder just to sort of dovetail off of that for a minute, uh, as you said, he could strike up a conversation or hold a conversation with absolutely anybody. You and I, unfortunately, will never have the opportunity mm. to to have that conversation with him. But if you did, what would you want to talk to him about? Well, I would love to know what he thought of me writing a book about <laughs> a, an inconsequential, inconsequential drive he took across the country. And, uh, you know, one day he spent with this with this artist. I think he would find that quite amusing. Um, I, I could think of a million things to ask Harry Truman about. Really, I, I think you would just start with, how was your day, sir? And he would take it from there. <laughs> So we know the book is released next week. That's the day you're going to be here. We'll talk about that in a second. But what next then? What if you were to do another book or maybe you have that plan in the works? What's your next area of interest? Oh, man, let me just get this book out there first. <laughs> I know. We, I know. We, no pressure. No pressure. Next, next yeah. week here. I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a million ideas. It's hard to. It's hard to get a book published, you know. You got to convince the the publisher. You have to convince a lot of people you have a good story, and I got a ton of stories, but I, I don't know how good they are. But I'm content to 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 uh, just think about Harry for the next couple months. Well, it was our publisher that wanted us to ask you that, so you know, like I said, the pressure's <laughs> off. No, it is. It's fa it's a fascinating world. Also, books about RFK, uh, all this marvelous potential, and a book called The President is is a Sick Man, which, by the way, is about one of the most utterly painful things that a human being could possibly imagine imagine you're out at sea lashed to a mast so that you can't move while surgery is performed on you while the waves are rocking the boat and you're the president of the united states yeah it was a rough day for grover cleveland there uh, <laughs> july 1st 1893 i'm sure he didn't remember it very fondly i would imagine not and and the fact is that's that tumor that was removed from him is at the bed to the best of my knowledge is still on display at the mutter museum yeah, in philly yeah, so yeah in philadelphia if, you, yep. if you're if you have a hankering for a presidential tumor that's the place to go there you go <laughs> the, the books again you can find them all all the information online at m-a-l-g-e-o that's matthew algeo uh his name m-algeo.net all the books are there, and uh, you'll be at the Truman Museum next week. We'll look forward to seeing you there. And uh, thank you so much for talking to us about the new one. Oh, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. You, you got it. Us Best too. of luck with When Harry Met Pablo. Thanks so much for coming on. We'll take a break. We'll be back here in just a couple of minutes on KMBZ. Back here with you on a Tuesday, 913-586-7798. Uh, just before we went on the air, saw the story out of ABC News that made me think, is there something about this that I don't understand, or do we really have a concern or a problem that I didn't know about with those over a certain age getting HIV, like new transmission of HIV. Yeah, it's it's the relevant question to have in this. And unfortunately, they give us some of the information, but not all of it, because mm -hmm. the stat that's in the article from ABC, what's going on is that the Biden administration is looking at uh, a new effort for those 65 and older, because that's what they can control via Medicaid, um, for HIV prevention drugs, prophylaxis measures to keep you from transmitting or getting HIV, but it's only for people 65 and above. And the stat that they give us in the article is that the over 50 crowd make up half of all people in the United States already living with HIV. 
Now, some of that's going to be weighted because the over 50s are now the majority of the po- of the population in the United right. States. But that's a huge number, and people are living with it longer. It's not the death sentence that it was during the 1980s and the 1990s. Yeah, it makes sense to me just because I think about um, the period of time that we had before we stressed protection and safe sex. And, I mean, all those measures that we weren't doing before. I mean, I'm I'm close to that age, and that makes sense to me. Um <laughs> You're right. Part of the reason they can do this is because they can control um, Medicare would cover uh, the full cost of those drugs. They are not cheap. They can cost more than twenty thousand dollars a year in the U.S. And I, I assume that's per person. It, yes. Yeah, that's what okay. it sounds like. Without a copay from the patient. I think my question is, do we have reasons to be particularly concerned about those over the age of 65 either not practicing safe sex or not being aware of it and transmitting HIV more than the rest of the population. Well, if you watch daytime TV, <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, they, uh, they have. There have been several spotlights on uh, that kind of thing over the last few years. Um, just how different things are now than I think what a lot of us would expect. I was going to say different from what they used to be, but it probably isn't. It's probably just, you know, different from our expectations. And if you are, you know, the surviving spouse, if you're a widow or widower or whatever, and you're newly single again at 65, 67, 71, well, your life's not over. So there apparently is that kind of concern with that many people who are over 50 who are infected with HIV, that if they're not careful about it, then you'll take the people who are and maybe otherwise immunocompromised. And certainly, I mean, as you get older, your immune system doesn't get better. Uh, taking them and putting them at further risk needlessly, where something like, like this could keep that from happening. Sorry about that. Like, I wonder if the other part of this needs to be some kind of PSA or some kind of public health campaign. Sure. Encouraging those over the 60, age of 65 to learn more about protection. Yes. Because that's the other way to prevent transmission. And you're absolutely right about that. There's also the the fact that the prophylaxis drugs are not 100% effective. So even if you just use that, you're still Mm -hmm. not as protected as you could be if you also use things like condoms. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a problem, and it's one they want to keep from spreading. Um, And, I mean, there is precedent for this elsewhere in the world. Not that we tend to take our cues from elsewhere in the world, but there are several countries in Europe and Africa that already do this. Yeah, the ABC News story says the U.S. is decades behind nations in Europe and Africa that are on track to end new HIV infections by 2030. Assuming the drug would have better efficacy, I mean, if it would get to 100%, if this is a priority, couldn't you give it to everybody? I mean, anybody that you're concerned about? And I'm being a little bit facetious because then I think, I mean, we had our COVID vaccination. Treat this like a vaccine. Yeah. The other things that we vaccinate against? Um, yeah, the uh, the difference is, I guess, how often you have to take it. And I don't know. Yes. I mean, when you're talking about a $20,000 course per year, per individual, yeah. um, and given the fact that, you know, again, people are living longer with, with HIV, and some of them, I mean, live for, as long as they would have anyway with HIV, mm-hmm. and it never develops into AIDS, that, uh, you know, you're still, you could still transmit the disease for that entire time. So it's not like... A disease where you could 
do what we did with smallpox and in a fairly short period of time through a vaccine eradicate it. I think that's the hope is that it will eventually get there, but that could conceivably take 50 years. And again, I think that's why I'm baffled by, given how expensive this drug is, what don't I know about the population over age 65 that this is so much of a concern that we're going to have Medicare cover that $20,000 a year per person. And I, I don't know. Do you have to do it every year? I mean, is that, do you take it one time and you're, and you're good? Don't know. Uh, if, if you have any, if you have any experience with this, uh, it's called prep. It's P little R and then big EP. Uh, if you know how often that dosage occurs, you know, is it just one shot that costs you 20 grand every year? Or is it something that's like a monthly or even a, a bi-monthly kind of drug that just costs you that much every time you get it? A couple of you were mentioning on the text line, uh, there is a place called The Villages in Florida. It's in central Florida. Yep, I north cannot Orlando. remember, John, is it like a city of its own or is it just a part like i know of it i know it's, i've had it's people that have lived there huge i mean it's it's much bigger in area than is the city of orlando but okay. it's not it's not anywhere near as densely populated you've got golf courses and things like that it's just incredibly spread out and it's this massive retirement community and yeah what people are mentioning on the text line quite accurately is there is a there's a huge problem with std transmission at the villages okay so go to the community center at the villages and give out condoms. I mean, it, it's, it would be a much cheaper way to go. I'm, I'm hung up on the, we don't do this for young people. We tell young people safe sex, Yep. not just to protect against HIV, but to protect against all STDs. Yeah. And with prophylaxis medication like that, generally you don't, there's no insurance coverage for that. Uh, I don't know if insurance covers PrEP. I mean, if, if you or I tried to get it through our insurance or if anybody just tried to get it through their, their insurance at work, if it would pay for that. Because generally speaking, we don't do preventative medicine. It's just a fascinating question. Yeah. If you went to your insurance company and said, for whatever reason it is. I'm in a high I, risk community or whatever. Right. And I want to take this drug to prevent myself from getting HIV. Would the insurance company laugh in your face immediately or would that laugh come in a letter later? Or would they say a box of condoms costs whatever it costs? Use go those. do that. Yeah. Um, and, and define yourself as being high risk. Again, why do we consider age over 65 high risk? And I think that's why. I mean, that's what they're looking at is they're looking at STD rates in the over 65 population going, OK, this number is way too high. And if we don't want to see a spike in cases of HIV and an HIV transmission, then we're going to have to stop it here. Because keep in mind, just because you're over 65 doesn't mean the person you're sleeping with is. Well, yes, that's that's possible. Yes. And, and then I go to if you know that you have HIV, the responsibility that's on you to then be as safe as you can be with whoever your partners are. Sure. Legal responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know where to go with this, but if you have thoughts here, 913-586-7798. I think it's, to me, it's a bigger car, uh, a bigger conversation that we don't have to have right now, but about, you're right, about preventative medicine, about how much we, what we find to be important and what we don't. Why do we consider the COVID-19 vaccine to be so important? Why do we, measles, smallpox, malaria, whatever it is, 
but other things we don't worry about as much. Yeah, obesity. <laughs> I mean, right. let's, let's talk about that one for a minute, you know, and right. all of the things that we could do as, as you know, as measures to combat that, and we don't. Um, so, yeah, you, you, it seems to be that we would much rather wait for you to get sick and then treat the sickness than keep you from getting sick, even if it's cheaper, which is, again, mind-boggling, but what are you going to do? 913-586-7798. We'll get to your comments on this still to come. Mom in Florida upset with American Airlines about what they did with her kids. Get to that still to come here on KMBZ. All right, we go to Florida for this next story. Mom is upset with American Airlines about what happened to her 10 and 12 year old. Yes, and she's filed a lawsuit over it. Um, this is a flight that took place in mid-year 2022, so a little more than a year ago. And what was supposed to happen is that the two boys were supposed to fly from here, from Missouri, to visit her partner in New York, in upstate New York. So she puts the, or tries to anyway, you know, takes the kids to the airport, takes the kids to the gate, and the, they, they use the unaccompanied minor program, which American Airlines has, where you get a flight attendant who then, or a gate attendant, who then takes over custody of your kids make sure they get on their plane on time and that everything is okay. And then somebody stays sort of, you know, keeping track of them the entire way because there was a layover in Charlotte. Problem was the flight from Missouri was delayed and eventually canceled. Now, before we get into what happened to these kids, Jamie, if, if you had unaccompanied minors, if you had kids or friends, kids or whatever that you were trying to put on a plane and their flight was delayed and then canceled what would you want to have happen call me right <laughs> call me boy it seems immediately like call me that'd be job one right and then yeah if i let me figure it out right and then i'll truck my butt back to the airport pick the kids up and we'll be back when you tell us they need to be back for the next flight mm -hmm. that's not what happened um according to her and according to the boys they were left without food or water or access to a bathroom in a, in a uh, room that they describe as being like a jail cell, mom did eventually get a call, but it said, okay, well, the kids are going to, uh, they're going to fly tomorrow at 5 p.m. We've got them. We're, we're taking care of them. No problem. You know, we, we, we've got this uh, and they'll fly out at five o'clock tomorrow, but they didn't give her a flight number. And she says she received conflicting information from the airline that left her unaware of the kind of accommodations that were there for the kids, even though her partner was told, oh, it's a nice room for unaccompanied minors. They'll have beds, they'll have food, they'll have water, they'll have, you know, all the comforts of home. And mom just didn't have any idea what was going on. And that's not, they, they didn't exactly have all the comforts of home. Had no idea what flight her children would be on. Nope. Or where exactly her kids were. Um, and also had a hard time getting a hold of anybody that could tell her phone number, uh, that American airlines had given her was no use. She spent hours unable to get in touch with her children until an employee at Charlotte airport connected her to one of her kids. And that's when the son gave the full story. This is what the lawsuit says. Uh, they had not had anything to eat or drink since the night before, not even a pretzel or snacks that are usually given out by the airline. <laughs> uh, the employee whom she described as kind in the suit, was finally able to get the boys some food and drink. The attorney says the worst part is that they were in the airport. They could have been taken anywhere. Quote, they were in an airport with all sorts of nuts around. That's according to the lawyer. 
Uh, instead, they were taken to a room the size of a jail cell that was freezing. They were forced to try to sleep on a sofa with the lights on. She also was not given much for the trouble here. Yeah. Her, her entire compensation from American Airlines amounted to a refund of the unaccompanied minor fee, $150. Okay. Um, so I don't know how many figures are on this lawsuit, <laughs> but, um, and I also don't know what, boy, if you've ever had sent your kids, um, as an unaccompanied minor on American airlines, I did it as a kid, but I don't, I don't know what the policies were. What, what do they tell you? What, what do the airlines promise you? Cause I think my question is what policies of their own did American airlines violate here? Yes. Yeah, that's that's what this is going to come down to, because it seems like what happened, given the fact that the employee that finally got the kids some food and drink the next day, when, you know, the, given the information about that, it seems like the flight from here got off. OK, that it was the Charlotte flight to New right. York that was delayed. They weren't clear about that in the initial. But, yeah, that's what it sounds like here. So that's why. So from the very moment you actually physically hand off your kid. We've done this with our own kids when they were kids many, many times. And you physically hand them off with a lanyard around their neck that's got a red and white stripe on it so that it's easily identifiable. These are unaccompanied minors. Mm -hmm. And it has all their information on it and all of that. And you hand them off to an employee of American Airlines. And they're supposed to never be out of the sight of an employee for the entire time that they're on their trip until they get handed off to the person that's designated to meet them at the airport. So that's the situation that she left them in. They got to Charlotte, and apparently nobody had any idea what to do with them when their flight was delayed. How they, how that that employee that was with them on the flight eventually lost track of them uh -huh. is that's something that they're going to have to answer for it because it seems like that's where the problem really started. And to be clear about this, because you're right, it wasn't clear at the beginning. They left Missouri. They were headed to upstate New York. That's where the partner named Ted in the lawsuit was going to pick them up. And there was going to be a stop in Charlotte. And they got out of here okay, or Missouri okay. It was in Charlotte that they had the problem. That's where the connecting flight was delayed several times before it was ultimately canceled. Uh, the airline called Ted, the partner that was supposed to pick them up in Syracuse, and told him that the kids would be on a flight there the next day at 9 a.m. Although I saw another version of this that said it wasn't going to be until 5 p.m. the next day. Yeah, that's what they told uh, mom. Oh, yeah. And that, yeah, the airline emailed him at about midnight saying the kids would be on a flight just after 5 p.m. the next day. Um, there has to be a system in place for the airline. And I can't imagine this happens that often, but I'm sure it happens where flights, especially these days post-COVID, get delayed, 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 and then canceled. You know, you've had to stay in a hotel before because of, <laughs> yes, of I flights have. that have been canceled. Yep. There's got, I don't know what the right answer to that is when they are delayed and, and the connecting flight is canceled. I don't know what adult you trust them to stay with. I mean, they're 10 and 12. What if they had been four and six? Yeah, well, and clearly, yeah, they had to stay in the unaccompanied minor room. I get that. I mean, you can't, you, you can't have an American Airlines employee or anybody, for that matter, taking the kids off site like right. like I did. I mean, you can't, you can't just say, okay, Bob, uh, go take these kids and spend the night in a hotel room with them. I don't think Mom would like that very much, uh, and nor would Bob likely. So, uh, yeah, what do you do? Well, that's why they have the unaccompanied minor room. But when they describe this thing as being like a jail cell and freezing cold, I mean, 
what adult didn't notice that? And it was July. I mean, it's it's not like it was freezing cold because it was the middle of February. It was freezing cold because they apparently had the air conditioning cranked. Yeah, um, they need to have a, a mini little apartment or something yes. where, you know, where someone is or an upscale daycare center or something with bunk beds in it. And more importantly, an adult who, st- who still maintains custody of those kids. Yeah, that's not, the word not, I keep coming back to. Right. Not just locking them in a room. Yeah. Somebody that's watching over them and any other kids that this could happen to very easily. What if it had been a baby? What yeah. if it had been, you know, what if it had been, I don't know how old you can, maybe that's, that's I, probably, you probably can't do that as an uncompany minor. No, I'm trying to remember what the lower limit is. Uh, and I don't, I, I think it's like five or six that, that's, that below right that. Too. Um, yeah, they're, they're not going to let you do it, but either way, um, I mean, to have that airport is not the worst that I've been to. Uh, but I mean, any airport's going to be confusing for a kid. So, uh, yeah, how you just find it. Uh, I mean, put them in some place like you described to Ted, a place mm-hmm. that has a couple of cots and is a nice room and all of that. Not an empty office with the lights on and a sofa. What do we do at KCI? I don't know. If I thought of this earlier, I would have I could. I could text people <laughs> I know. Justin here, right? but, but, <laughs> there's a question I've never asked him before. Um, but does every airport have a system for that? I mean, I ask only half jokingly. I mean, you and I both toured that airport yeah. a lot. Is there a place in that airport? Now, I'm, I'm sure it's behind closed doors. It's not a part that we would see. But what's the accommodation for that at any major airport? Because what it sounds like is they put the kids in a room where they would put you if you were a problem. If you right. had to, if you had to be removed from an airplane, that this right. is where they would lock you up until the cops got there to take you. Uh, they have offered zero explanation of this, by the way. Safety is our priority. Blah blah blah. 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 Everything <laughs> that you would expect them to say. Uh huh. Because they have to say something and can't admit. Wow, did we goof this one up? Yeah, but uh, you did. Let's let's go to the phones and bring in Janet and Desoto. She's got a word or two to say about this one. Hi, Janet. Janet, are you with us? Oh, there she is. I, I'm sorry. Start over because your your phone didn't catch up with us right away. I'm sorry. I said thanks for taking the call. Love the show. Thank you. As a parent who put a third grader on a flight to go visit his grandparents, I am a the experience to say too much can go wrong, and it is a for any parent to put a kid on a flight unattended. I don't think the airport airlines should offer that service. Period. Because when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. Apparently, yeah, but what do you do if you're a parent and you can't go? I mean, well, you don't send your kid, or you have somebody accompany them a cousin, a relative, an aunt, a friend, somebody. But a minor should not be on a flight unattended. They don't sit with you on the plane, they don't take you to the bathrooms. If you think it has not been my experience at all, and I think it's just really, again, as a voice of experience for a kid who had a bad experience, I just think the airlines should say, We don't do this service pay somebody else to do it for you. Okay. Uh, all right, Janet, I will say with our kids, that's exactly what happened. They they did have a flight attendant sit with them for the entire flight. Um, and that's verified. I mean, the, the kids told us that. So, I, I mean, there are just situations. When we did that, they were flying off to summer camp. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was no way to have anybody else on the flight with them except to buy a ticket and then just, you know, fly there and home t- twice. It, you know, it would just get silly after a while. I also assume this is the exception, that this is the extraordinary that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. 
I mean, we've never heard of we never heard of something like this, but I am texting our friends over at KCIO as we speak here. Just ask them. Um, I flew as an unaccompanied minor a lot as a kid. Now, granted, I mean, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, but my grandparents lived in southern Texas in McAllen, and I would fly down there every summer to go see them. Um, and that was, you know, I, I wasn't an experienced traveler at the age of 10 or 11, you know. <laughs> you weren't yet, um, really? I'm so No, that, that hadn't happened yet. I didn't have a flight attendant sitting with me the whole time. That seems unrealistic. Airlines don't have that manpower to spare where you're going to have a flight attendant sit with them the whole time. Now, they checked on me and made sure I was okay mm -hmm. and, you know. But they weren't sitting with me the whole time, and I was fine. Maybe it was the age. Yeah, maybe it was the fact that we that one of ours was under 10. But, they, mm -hmm. yeah, they literally did have somebody assigned to them who sat with okay. them the entire way uh, there and back, which was really kind of nice. Um, I'm trying to remember. The, yeah, the first time they would have been 8 and 5. So okay. they, yeah, and, and they were fine. I mean, the only problem we ever had was watching the plane leave and then seeing their bags go by on the tarmac going, ooh, <laughs> uh -oh. I don't think the bags are going to get there when they're there. So, yeah, that did happen once. But as far as them getting there, yeah, it, it just seems like every airport should have a mechanism that's a little more, or okay, a little less chaotic than this one was. I think it's funny that people are blaming mom. Mom should have made sure the kids were on a nonstop flight. What if there had been an emergency landing somewhere? Oh, I can answer that. There isn't one. Uh, it doesn't say, all it says is Missouri mm -hmm. here. So if you take the two big airports in Missouri here in St. Louis mm -hmm. and, tr and you're flying to upstate New York, yeah, you try and get there nonstop. There oh, isn't tried, one. Yeah. Not only is there not one on American, there's not one anywhere. If you're flying from here to Buffalo, you're stopping someplace idiotic like Baltimore. <laughs> that's actually that's actually what I did when I went to upstate New York earlier this year. That's yeah. exactly where I connected was Baltimore. And and when yeah. I did it, it was Charlotte. It was this airport. So I'm sure I was on the exact same flight route that, that those kids were supposed to be on, depending on whether they flew out of here or out of St. Louis. But yeah, uh, finding a nonstop flight sounds like a great idea, unless there just isn't one on any airline. And that's the situation they were in. We'll get to your calls in a sec. But the other question a lot of you are asking is, how did at least the 12-year-old not have a cell phone? Not all 12-year-olds have cell phones. Yeah. I mean, that's still young for some people to have a cell phone. True enough. Uh, so. And again, you know, that's up to the parents to decide whether they think a 12-year-old. Now, with us, when our son, who also went to Texas, uh, when he was, I think, nine to visit family that was there, he didn't have a cell phone yet either. We mm -hmm. went and got him one. Um, okay. We went and got a, you, you, one of the, the, like a burner phone, like on NCIS, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> one, one of those <laughs> phones you pick TV. up at Walmart, uh, which, by the way, within the first 24 hours, he lost. So uh, we go to Caden, who's calling in from North Kansas City. Hello, Caden. Hey, guys. How's it going? Going well. So let's start off by, I, you know, I have worked in the airline industry. I'm younger. That was my one of my first jobs. But, um then a lot of airlines do offer this option where you can fly your child out, like you guys mentioned earlier, to their grandparents' house, to a camp, whatever. And the way a lot of them do it is the parents will bring the kid inside the airport to the, you know, to the ticketing counter, wherever it is. And airport, some some airports, I know Kansas City and Kansas City does. They hire subcontractors, you know, who who do like wheelchair agents where they who people who are in a wheelchair, they'll escort them, they'll push their wheelchair down to the gates, yada yada. They'll have one of those people come out and they'll they'll you know, if the kid is young enough, you know, I don't think an eighteen year old kid needs an escort to and from the gates. Sure. But 
that's just me. But you know, a six, seven, eight-year-old kid, even ten or eleven, you know, mm. you know, they still kind of rely on their parents. They'll they'll escort the kid to the gate. They'll, you know, they get the kid through the TSA. They'll you know take them down to the gate, get them secured on the aircraft. So flight attendants will make sure the kids fine with it, and then we'll have somebody on the receiving end. You know, and and that's actually annotated in a lot of you know it can be annotated in the flight documents. Hey, we've got a child on board. His age is, you know, he's eight. You know, have somebody on the receiving end ready to pick him up to give him to whoever's whoever's taking the kid from the airport. Yes. Make sure the right pe- person is picking him up from the airport too. But you know, and as far as the, it's just kind of in the you know for the mother not to make sure to make sure the kid, you know, the mother still has to make sure the kid gets in, gets to the airport and gets a trusted, you know, adult who can take them from there, you know, and not just dropping them off and saying, good luck. Oh, yeah, and, and I don't think she did. I mean, uh, Caden, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think she just, you know, dropped him at the curb at the airport and said, okay, yeah. off you go. Um, I know unaccompanied minors, that's one place where they will let parents go right. all the way to the gate. You can escort your kids to the gate if your kids are unaccompanied minors. Um, sometimes they do it, like he said, with contractors that you – right there at the ticketing counter – other times they'll let you walk all the way to the gate. Here's the thing. If the airline doesn't have a system in place for what to do, if the connecting flight ends up being canceled, don't allow unaccompanied minors on that flight. I mean, just tell them. I just texted our friends at KCI to find out what the answer is. But if if KCI doesn't have an accommodation for that, or if you're flying through Portland, Oregon, and they don't have an accommodation for that, they can't be on that flight because of what could happen. Right. 913-586-7798 if you want to hear. A lot of you are texting as well. We'll get to more of your comments on this next here on KMBZ. Check with the story. It started in Missouri. Mom put her 10 and 12-year-old kids on a flight uh, headed to upstate New York with a stop in Charlotte. They get to Charlotte. The flight ends up being delayed, 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 and then canceled. So the kids need to stay in Charlotte overnight. Lawsuits been filed saying they weren't really taken care of. They were left in a room the size of a jail cell and were not fed. Yeah, and that's the situation, and it is it is funny. I mean, seeing as many people as we are all over the text line being as judgmental as they could possibly be about mom in this case going, mm-hmm. how could she? And, and, well, then kids just shouldn't be able to fly alone then. And, and the fact is you don't always have a choice. I mean, if you're talking about court-ordered visitation with somebody who lives in another state, you either get them there or you go to jail. So it's you know it's not always as simple as we want to try to make other people's lives. Katie's calling in from North Kansas City. Hi, Katie. Hey, I uh, my parents were uh, divorced when I was younger, and uh, my mom and I moved to St. Louis for several years. And in that period Sorry. of time, <laughs> yeah, you know, I've got the same feeling. Uh, so we were in St. Louis for several years, and I would fly back and forth every other weekend for years to see my dad in Kansas City. And so that was from ages like 8 to 14. Um, and then I also, my sister lived out of state. She was in Texas for a while in Arizona. Um, I flew to California by myself. So this is all between the ages of, like I said, 8 and 14. I've probably flown more as a child alone than I have with people as an adult with all the travel I did. But there was one time where the airline actually lost me, um, and cell phones weren't a thing back then in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So I got on the plane, got off the plane. I knew I had to switch planes, but the person that was in charge of taking me to the next plane didn't take me. So I'm just there sitting at the gate waiting, and I go and I ask and say, when's the next plane? You know, I've been here for a while. 
And they made it like it was no big deal. So I didn't know anything was going on, but they took me to this giant conference room with other kids who were uh, waiting to, you know, be taken to their, their next flight. And I got to Kansas City, and I guess my mom had caused a big stink at the airport. Uh, where's my kid? What do you mean they didn't make the flight? You know, so it's it's not as easy as just saying, well, the parents should do this or do that. Things things happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and in, like you said, you guys got a burner, I think, for your son at one point. Mm-hmm. And if you're really worried about it. But also sometimes these people aren't the people who do a lot of traveling and don't understand how all of the ins and outs work. So it can happen. It can happen, but you also can't walk your kids to the gate anymore like you used to be able to. So that's, it's much different. You also are putting the trust of your, you know, the safety of your child in the hands of strangers. So it just, it's not as easy as a lot of people make it out to be. Absolutely. Uh, Katie, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. That somebody actually had that experience and still says, yeah, you know, it's something you got to do sometimes. Absolutely. Okay, thanks to everybody for getting in here. Uh, Coming up in the next hour, you have a star basketball player who is used to hitting a lot of three-pointers. Suddenly wasn't. We'll talk about what the problem was coming up here on KMBZ.